Amen. I bless his name this morning. Amen. My only plea is Jesus. If you you have your Bibles, I want you to take them to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter number 53. Isaiah chapter number 53. And over the next several weeks, like I said, we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter number 53. And we're going to do that under the heading that this is the gospel according to Isaiah. You've heard of the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according uh, to Mark and to Luke and to John. But I submitted to you that in the Old Testament, Isaiah himself, he gave us a gospel that is no doubt the same gospel that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John preached in the New Testament. And so I want us to take a look and dissect this chapter under the gospel according uh, to Isaiah. And this gospel starts with a rejection of the Lamb. We'll get into that, but Isaiah chapter number 53. Look at verse number 1. We'll read down through verse number Isaiah begins with a question, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. The rejection of the Lamb. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. I thank you for Isaiah, your penman, who through divine uh, prophecy and the, the telescope of faith, he looks down through time and he sees the Lamb of God being given for our sins. Father, I pray that the visage and the visions of Isaiah would become thoroughly real to our hearts this morning. May we see what Isaiah is seeing of Jesus. God, we start at the the point of every gospel presentation, the dissection of rejection of Jesus. God, I pray you'd make that real to us this morning. If there is anyone under the sound of my voice that is in this place of rejection, as Isaiah is seeing here, I pray that their blinded eyes would be open to who Jesus is and what he's done for us. God, I pray that you'd do heart work in us, those that know you in saving faith. And may we lament our former condition, the years of our rejection, but let us rejoice in the fact that the arm of the Lord has been revealed, that we have seen that which so many miss. We have seen the Messiah. We have seen who Jesus is. He has now become our lamb. Oh God, I pray that you would help our hearts this morning. Father, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. In 1966, Barry Leventhal was a young Jewish man on top of the world. He was the offensive captain for the UCLA football team. 
Barry, and Barry, as that captain, Barry had just led UCLA to its first ever Rose Bowl championship. After, soon after the Rose Bowl victory, Barry's best friend, Kent, said that he had come to faith in Jesus Christ. He had come to know Christ in a personal way. Barry was intrigued by the change in Kent's life. He, he saw a transformation overtake his friend. He was completely different. A few weeks later, Kent introduced Barry to Hal. Hal was the, he was the campus crusade for Christ leader on the UCLA campus. And one day, Barry and Hal, they were sitting in the uh, crowded student lounge and they were having a conversation that got tense real quick. You see, Hal was going back to the Old Testament and showing Barry predictions of the Messiah in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And Hal happened to be going through some of the very verses that we're reading here this morning in Isaiah 53. All of a sudden, Barry stopped Hal in his tracks. He said, how could you do this? Hal said, do what? You're using a trick Bible. He said, you've got a trick Bible just to fool the Jews. And Hal was, what do you mean? Barry responded, you Christians took those so-called messianic predictions from your own New Testament and then rewrote them into your edition of the Old Testament in order to fool Jews into following this Jesus. But I guarantee you, those messianic prophecies are not in the Jewish Bible. Hal was taken aback. He had never been accused, uh, uh, had, had never such an accusation made against him. And he said, this is no trick Bible, Barry. And Barry then, he got louder. He jumped to his feet and said, no, it isn't. How, I've never heard of anyone say this, uh, say such things before. This is a complete farce. You've got some kind of manipulated translation in your hands. People began to stare. The, the argument got heated. And uh, Barry said, no, how this relationship is over. Barry, Barry, wait a minute. Do you have your own Tanech? It's a, it's a version of the Jewish Bible. Uh, uh, Barry said, yes, I do. I got it at my bar mitzvah. So what? Why don't you write down these verses and go read them in your own Jewish Bible? Because that'll be a waste of time, Barry said. They're not in there. Those verses are not in that Hebrew Bible. Please, Hal persisted, just write them down and check them out for yourself. After the men went back and forth for a little while, finally Barry said, fine, it'll be a waste of time, but I'll do it. I'll check them out. I'll call you, you don't call me. And he stormed out of the student center. Well, Barry left not expecting ever to see Hal again. He didn't check the verses immediately, but after a while, guilt began to gnaw at him. He says, you know what? You know, I did promise him I'll look at them, and so I'll do it. So he pulled out his old Jewish Bible that he got at his bar mitzvah, and he was shocked that the very predictions that Hal had referenced in his quote-unquote trick Bible 
were in his Jewish Bible. The one that had the most was most shocking was the, the, ver, the verses from Isaiah 53. Barry was at a loss over the whole thing. And so he went to his rabbi and said to him, Hey, rabbi, I've met some people at school who claim that the so-called servant in Isaiah 53 is none other than Jesus of Nazareth. But I would like to know from you, who is this servant in Isaiah 53? Barry was astonished at the reply from the rabbi. Listen to what he said. Barry I must admit that as I read Isaiah 53, it does seem to talk about Jesus. But since we Jews do not believe in Jesus, it can't be speaking of Jesus. You know, the truth is, Isaiah 53 is such a vivid account of the person, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that one, hardened in unbelief, might just call it a trick Bible. But it's no trick. Some 700 years before Jesus was ever born, the prophet Isaiah penned an astonishing chapter that detailed the events and the character of Jesus Christ. I want us to spend the next few weeks looking at this all important chapter that I believe it's a gospel unto itself. It is the gospel according to Isaiah. Now when we look at this opening verses of this chapter, we see Isaiah's gospel starts with rejection. Rejection of the Lamb of God. Isn't that where all gospel presentations start? Isn't that where your gospel story initially started? It starts with rejection. I'll show that in a few things. I want you to see three characteristics of these verses that indicate a rejection of the Lamb of God. Notice, first of all, I want you to recognize the barrenness of rejection. The barrenness of rejection. Go with me to verse number 1. Who hath believed thy report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. You know, I, I grew up all my life as a child with parents who every year planted a vegetable garden. Every year. Matter of fact, to this day, they still do so. They still have a garden. Just about every year. You talk to dad at the end of the summer, right around the fall. Well, dad, you're going to have a garden uh, the, next year? I don't know. It's a lot of work, you know. And, and I just don't think, we, it's just, we're going to let it rest. And by springtime, he's already changed his mind. <laughs> we're going to plant another garden this year. He, he loves doing it every year. But I know I've learned a few things about a garden growing up in a household that has it. You see, when you plant a garden, it has to be the right time. It has to have the right preparation, and it has to have the right planning. It has to be the right time of year. You know, you can't start planting your garden in the dead of winter. That's ridiculous. The soil, you just can't drop some seeds on the ground and expect it to come up with some kind of harvest. No, the ground's got to be plowed. It's got to be cultivated. 
It's got to actually be fertilized. You need to drop some of those little pellets in there to give it that extra fertilization to grow the plants. There has to be preparation for there to be a garden. But that's not the case with Jesus. When Jesus came into the world, the conditions were not just right for a Messiah to come. No, there was barrenness. Uh, the, The same is true in our lives before the gospel comes. We don't have to, we, we didn't have just the right kindling of divine attributes to make a child of God. No, when the gospel came to us, there's nothing but barrenness. You don't have a spark of divinity that needs to be blown on to create a fire of spirituality. We were on our trip in Israel and that was one of the things that I kept getting from our God all the time. That, that, that we, have this, we have this divine spark in us that just needs to be blown on and read the Bible and it'll, it'll kindle a fire and make us more godly. No, that's not the case at all. Without the Lord Jesus Christ, we are barren, we are lifeless, we are, as Ephesians tells us, dead in trespasses and in sin. The same is true when Jesus came unto his own in Isaiah, in this prophecy in Isaiah. Notice, first of all, we see the esteem of his word. The esteem of his word. Look at this. Isaiah starts out his gospel chapter with a question. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? What is Isaiah saying? Hey, is anybody believing what I've been saying? And really, that is at the crux of the matter, isn't it? When it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who has believed upon Him? Who is believing this report? In Acts 16, when the... Uh, Paul was in prison with Silas and you remember how the walls uh, were shaken and how the, the prison guard, he comes in and he says, what must I do to be saved? What did Paul say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. John 3.16 is that gospel in a nutshell. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever, what? Believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, believing the report, believing the account is essential to salvation. It's essential to redemption. I don't care how long you've been coming to church. You haven't always believed. The default setting, you know, you have, you have, most of you maybe have a computer, know something about default settings. When you install the app its defaults are set it's it's the settings that you can go change but there is a default there's a starting point well the default setting of the human heart is unbelief you don't believe that you're a sinner (laughs) you don't believe that you need a savior you don't believe the words of jesus You don't believe the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You simply don't believe. And that's where Isaiah starts his gospel. Who believes this? Who's believing this report? Look at the next phrase. And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Who are these that believe? 
How does one believe what the prophet is saying? The arm of the Lord's been revealed to them. They've seen the power of God. You see, every salvation is a miracle. It is a divine work of God's power. God lays bare His arm and power to turn the heart from unbelief to belief. You see, I didn't always believe on Jesus. I don't care if it was Miss, Miss um, Becky Huckabee in my Sunday school class when she taught me about Jesus and taught me things from the Bible. Uh, you know, initially as a child, I thought as a child, you know, I just took whatever anybody says, but along came a time where I don't believe this stuff anymore. I, I don't, I, you know, I had a childlike belief, but beyond critical thinking, uh, beyond, when I got to the point of critical, I don't believe this stuff anymore. And by the time I got into those high school days and, in, and, and growing up and into college, I didn't believe that junk anymore. People went to church to impress each other. People, just, people went to church just because they ain't got nothing better else to do, in my view. I was in unbelief, but March the 20th, 1994, 29 years ago, this past week, I went from unbelief to belief, powerfully. Changed my life on one night. In one moment, I went from unbelief to belief on the Lord Jesus. How is that possible? Was it just a build up, Brother Ronnie, and you finally, you finally tipped the scales? No, not at all. It was a miracle. It was a change of heart. I, went, I got in that car, one person got out that car, a different person. It was a miracle. The, the arm of the Lord had been revealed. You see... Without, outside of God bearing His arm, there's nothing but barrenness. There's no belief, no power. The esteem of His Word. Second of all, I want you to see the environment of His welcome. Notice what He says in verse number 2. Isaiah goes from, anybody believe in this? Anybody, uh, anybody have the arm of the Lord revealed? But then He starts talking about this servant. This servant, this this one in the previous chapters he's talking about. He comes into verse number 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. Notice how Isaiah describes the environment of Jesus coming. The word tender plant here. It indicates a twig of a fallen tree or an outgrowth of a dead tree. No, the conditions that welcomed Jesus into this world were not conducive to his, his being lauded or His being admired for who He truly was. He was born in Bethlehem stable. The Messiah of God was welcomed not by trumpets and, and not, by, not by priests and not by kings. He was welcomed by a peasant mother a foster father and a handful of shepherds in a dank, stinking, dirty uh, stable. When Jesus came into the world, Judaism was dead, was a dead and lifeless shell of what it once was. Gone were the men like David and Daniel and Isaiah himself. Gone were the men that had a, had a burning heart for God's Messiah, a burning desire to worship God, no, the religion of God had devolved down into ritualism, legalism, moralism, and nothing more. It was dead and lifeless. And upon Jesus' arrival and the onset of His ministry, He was not welcomed at all. 
Remember, I, I, at Nazareth, we, when we visited Nazareth, they took us up to that point called the precipice. And, and at that point is the location for where the, his own hometown people were going to throw him off the cliff and kill him because of what he had said. He was, needless to say, he was not welcome. Matter of fact, John says in, verse, in John chapter 1, verse 11, he came into his own and his own received him not. He was a root out of dry ground. He was a, the miracle life of the Messiah came out of parched, barren, fruitless, desert wasteland. Before his arrival, there was nothing. 400 years of silence, that intertestamental testimonial period between the New Testament and Old Testament. 400 years of silence from God. 400 years of the heavens as brass. Nothing was given. No revelation. No communication from God. It was dead silence. And then all of a sudden, there was life. John the Baptist announced his arrival. Andrew believed and found his brother Peter who also believed. James and John were chosen and they believed. And one by one by one, the disciples were called into Jesus and they believed. There was desert, lifeless environment. And when Jesus comes on the scene, there begins to be life. You know, that's the way it is with every sinner's heart. It is not a teeming jungle of life that's just waiting on the right conditions for Jesus to arrive. No, it's a dry desert. To the casual observer, one might look at that person and say, there's no way that something could come of this. There's no way that something could grow out of this. Why? There's no chance that life could happen here. That's what Isaiah said. It's completely unexpected. He was a root out of dry ground. He was a tender plant out of something dead and lifeless. It's the most unexpected thing to find life growing from a dead environment. You know what? That gives me hope. That gives me hope. You know what? Many of you in this room, you've got lost, lost children, grandchildren, kids that are away from God, kids that could care less, and you look at their life and you think, man, there is no way. They're ever coming back. There is no way that ever, anything could come of this. Hey, listen, God, God is an expert of making life in barren places and making life spring up in the most desert of conditions. You may be here, no Christian background, no appetite for God, no desire to God. That's all right. He's a root out of dry ground. There's hope for you. There's hope for our church. <laughs> hey, this may be looking dead and lifeless in this place. Hey, but those are not, they don't have to have just the right conditions for God to do something in the church. He can just clear off a spot and bring life and do wondrous things in the middle of nowhere. Oh, he's a root out of dry ground. There's hope for our community. There's hope for this church. There's hope for your children, grandchildren, your moms and dads. There's hope because he's a root out of dry ground. He's liable to spring up anywhere. You just don't know. You just don't know what God is doing. That's what Jesus told. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus. The wind blows where it lists. It does what it wants. You don't know where it's going or where it's coming from. So it is with the Spirit of God. It does things behind the scenes we could never account for and never know of. He's a root out of dry ground. 
Recognize the barrenness of rejection here. Notice also, realize the blindness of rejection. Go with me. Verse number 2, it shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. Notice this. He hath no form nor comeliness. When we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Notice he's talking about a description. You know, blindness is a very apt description for those that have never embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ. During his life and ministry, Jesus oftentimes, if you read the Gospels, you'll find accounts where Jesus opened blinded eyes. And I believe that not only did he miraculously do this, open blinded eyes, but I believe the opening of the blinded eyes is an illustration, is an allegory, if you will. It's, it's what happens to lost people that believe on Jesus. Their, their eyes are open. Uh, as a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul uses blinded, a blinded condition to describe lost people being deceived by satanic forces. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4. But if our gospel is hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine, on, uh, shine unto them. Here he's saying, that the God of this world, he blinded what? Not their eyes. They could see physically. He's blinded the mind. Those that are in belief have a blinded mind. The blindness of the lost condition is not lost on Isaiah's gospel. It's here. There's a blindness here. Notice, first of all, he was not recognized. Verse number 2, He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we should see him, There is no beauty that we should desire Him. The word form here refers to an outward appearance of Jesus. The outline of His face. Think of a silhouette. You know, it's interesting. uh, Back in the 1800s when they did not have photographs, they would oftentimes take a person, shine a light on their face and put a piece of paper and draw an outline. You know, that's a silhouette. You know, it's uncanny how you can recognize the outline or the silhouette of a face and make them out. It's interesting note. I went down a path trying to make silhouettes like that one time. And it's amazing how you can, how you can pick out someone's distinguishing marks just by, just by the silhouette in the darkness. But that wasn't the case with Jesus. They couldn't make out His outline. They couldn't see Him. The outline of His shape. It also refers to this word form here. It also refers to beautiful or goodly so they could not see his beautiful form his 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 goodly appearance also the word comeliness here it means magnificence splendor excellency so all these characteristics they completely missed they didn't see it they were blinded to who Jesus was They just could not see what all the fuss is about Jesus. You come back with me to the tabernacle. You know know much about the tabernacle that was the place of God's worship. Children come out, Israel come out of Egypt's land. Moses established a place of worship for the people of God called the tabernacle. And uh, it was uh, basically a tent where, where the Ark of the Covenant, the 
the candlestick, the table of showbread, all these integral things that make up the part of the worship of God in that day and time, in that dispensation, if you will. Remember how that in the desert, they, they would have that tabernacle in the center, and then all the tribes, Dan and Naphtali and all these different tribes, they would surround the entire village, would be all centered on that tabernacle. Imagine yourself as a traveler and you come over the hill and you spy these children of Israel out in the wilderness. You think, man, what in the world? What in the world's going on here? All these tents surrounded that drab-looking building in the middle. The, the scriptures tell us that the, ta- the tabernacle on the outside had the, what's called badger skins. It's just a skin of an animal draped over the top, a drab color of of these animal skins that make up the top of the tent and the sides. From the outside, it would look gray and, and, and brownish faded under the, under the Arabian sun. It, it wouldn't look impressive at all. It just looks like a big tent out in the middle of the wilderness. Nothing spectacular about that tabernacle. Had a, had a place where they're burning a sacrifice out front, but beyond that, not much going on. What are all these people doing around surrounding this drab-looking tent in the middle of nowhere. The casual observer might think, that, but, but, might think that, but for those that have been inside of it, for those that know what's inside that tabernacle, it's intricately woven veils, it's glowing light of gold and the candlesticks and the table of showbread, the aroma of the fragrant incense of worship to God for those that have been inside, for those that know what's on the other side of that veil, the Shekinah glory of the Lord, the presence of God, for those that know of its silver, its brass, its gold, they know its value. They know what's inside. Most importantly, they know the value Godward. They know that this was the only place where sins could be atoned, where fellowship with God could be found, was in that place. Now, I'm not paralleling this building with the tabernacle. The tabernacle of God these days, is, according to the New Testament, is within the heart of the believer. But there's the same sense in which happens every day every lord's day there'll be cars that'll that'll pass in front of faith community church they'll see that handful of cars over there and they'll they'll click their tongues and say good night what are they doing over there why are they there every sunday morning why why do they feel that parking lot what do they see in that place boy that preacher must really have them duped to spend all that time and money there. To spend those wonderful, uh, you know, there's a song out there called, uh, uh, what is it, about easy like Sunday morning. I don't know if you've heard it or not, but you can tell that ain't a Christian because Sunday morning is not easy. <laughs> it's not easy to get up out of bed, get ready and go to church and grab your Bible and put all the kids in the car and fight with the wife halfway there and then act like nothing happened when you pull in the parking lot. Nothing's easy like Sunday morning for a believer. No, ain't nothing easy about it. And they may wonder, why would you spend an easy Sunday morning down in a a pretentious building like that and have somebody try to preach to you and and that you know they're going to ask for money. There's going to be a plate around there somewhere if you put money in. 
Yeah, they don't know how our lives have been changed. They don't know the glory of God's Word. They don't know the refreshment, the nourishment, the strength that comes from gathering together with the people of God, singing the praise of God, and being sent out in the mission into this world. No, they don't know. They don't know what it's like I, to be once blind and now see, to have seen Jesus and for who He is and what He's done for us. We know firsthand of His abundant mercy, His saving grace, His unbounded love to us. The value of Jesus is unsearchable. It is inestimable. It's beyond compare. But they just don't see it. Why? They see no form of comeliness in Him. They, they see no beauty in Him that they should desire Him. He's not recognized. Also, He's not received. Look at verse number 3. And He is despised and rejected of me and a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. These people surrounding Jesus did not recognize Him as Messiah. They also did not receive Him. As a matter of fact, verse 3 indicates that they did not only refuse to recognize Him as their Messiah, but what they did see, they despised. They rejected it. You know, oftentimes when we say the word despised, it's usually with gritted teeth and being angry and not liking somebody. Being angry, I just, ah, I despise them. It's, it's, a euphem, it's a word we often use in exchange for hate someone, but we're too much of a Christian to say hate. We'll just say I despise them or something like that. We shouldn't actually as a Christian. But anyway, we despise things. But that's not exactly what's communicated by the word despise. It's colored by our language today. The word despise here means to think little of, to not count as weighty. The same word was used to Esau, how he despised his birthright. He didn't, oh, I hate being the firstborn birthright son. He said, I didn't care about it. He don't care about it at all. It didn't mean that much to him. It didn't mean anything. He thought little of it. He saw no value in it. The word rejected in verse number 3 is is to be is, is a word that means to be seen as frail and de- or destitute. You put these two together, we have the attitude of disgust towards Jesus, a hatred of Christ. You know, that's at the very heart of the lost sinner. The world is a at war, at enmity with God. Here's the mindset of the lost sinner. I'm not going to let some religion, tell me how to live my life. I'm going to live my life in any way that I please, that I direct in my own way. This is my life. I'm not going to hand it over to some religious fanaticism. You know, they echo the same thing that the religious crowd did at the days of Jesus. Away with this man. Crucify him. We will not have him rule over us. We have no king but Caesar. The natural man uses the name of Jesus as a cuss word. They spit upon the life and cross of Jesus. But thank God that's not the way he felt about us. 
Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, what love Jesus has for us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. 1 John 3, 1, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Oh, the love of God that drew salvation's plan. text goes on to say that He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Didn't say he was a man of joys, but of sorrow, anguish, pain, and grief. Where will you find Jesus? More than likely with those that are suffering, with those that are in pain, with those that are in anguish. Hard times, times of suffering and sorrow are where Jesus comes walking in when everybody else is walking out. Jesus is attracted to our weakness, to our sorrow, to our anguish. Recognize the barrenness of rejection. This crowd rejected Him. Recognize the, the blindness. This, this scene of rejection is, is lifeless. This scene of rejection is blinded to who Jesus is. But finally, review the bitterness of rejection. Review the bitterness of rejection. Look at verse number 3. Man of sorrows acquainted to grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. And he was despised and we esteemed him not. The sending of the Messiah is God's plan to redeem fallen humanity. The motive of God's actions is his infinite love and righteousness. God's reason for sending Jesus has lost and sinful humanity at the very heart of it. But our reaction to God's willingness to save us is not only empty and barren, it's not only ignorant and blinded, but Isaiah tells us it's downright bitter towards Jesus. Bitterness. Notice our behavior. The behavior of these that he talks about. Says that, says in verse number 3, midway through towards the bottom, he, we hid as it were our faces from him. I got to admit something to you today. And it's something that I've discovered about myself that is not conducive to being a pastor. Alright? I have discovered that I am an introvert. You know what an introvert is? It doesn't mean that I just can only live in a cave as a hermit by myself all the time. But it means this, that I am energized and refreshed and healthy when I am by myself as opposed to being around people. When I'm around people, I'm fine with being around people. I can, you know, I can cut up, I can... I can be congenial, I can carry on conversations, but it just wears me out. I'm telling you, it just wears me out to be around a lot of people. Now, my wife tends to be the opposite in that way God puts them together, puts the introvert with the extrovert. Carrie, for the most part, is, is energized by being around people, and when she, is, when she is by herself for long periods of time, she gets deflated, she... She has a lot of problems. She has difficulty. 
The reason I tell you this is this is what uh, and this is what happens when I'm an introvert. Let's say let's say I'm I'm at Walmart and uh, I, I see I see you shopping somewhere at Walmart. My initial reaction, even though I love you and I'm friends with you and you, I, I care for you, I pray for you. My initial reaction is, whoa, no, I, I, I'm not ready. I'm not. I'm not mentally ready. You know, to meet people or to talk. You ever done that? I see somebody from high school I hadn't seen in 20 years. Oh, my word. Oh, my word. I'm not ready for this. I walk away. I, I won't even look at them. I'll say, I hope they didn't see me. I don't, I'm not ready for a conversation. I, I just, I'm not mentally prepared for this. I, I, I can't do it. I will hide my face. It's a reflex reaction. I'll run to the other side of the store. I'll turn my head quickly away as if I didn't see the person. That's the picture in verse number 3. And he says, and we hid, our, we hid as it were our faces from him. It doesn't mean to hide one's face in shame. You know, I'll let on sometimes at work when I make a mistake, I'm like, oh no. You know, I'm not hiding, I'm hiding my face in shame. That's not what Isaiah's talking about here. It's to hide our faces like, huh, I'm not going to talk to you. It's what I tend to do when I see somebody I hadn't seen for 30 years in Walmart. Oh, I'm not going to talk to this person. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to spend the time and the energy that it takes to talk to this person. I'm not ready for it. I'm not prepared. And I will turn my face. I will hide my face. It doesn't mean that we hide in shame. It means we don't want to have anything to do with Him. Whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, this is our natural reaction to Jesus. This is our natural reaction to God's Lamb. I don't want to have anything to do with Him. I don't want to get tied up in that in that religious mess. But thank God He didn't turn His face from us. He is seeking. He is the seeking, saving Son of God. We may turn our faces away from Him, but He is looking towards us. We may not have, not, we may not have interest in Him, but He'll not turn away from us. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, 6. This is a continuation of that passage. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying God has turned His face towards us. He has shined His face into our hearts. The final words, verse number 3, Isaiah reiterates that this Son of God is despised. Verse number 3, it starts out, he's despised. And at the end of it, it says, he was despised. Despised. It's that word that means to think little of. It actually also means to be held in contempt. Disgust. Think lightly of. Oh, gosh. That Jesus character. I don't want anything to do with that. Then he adds, he adds at the end of the verse, Esteemed him not. The, the word literally means to weave. The word esteem means to weave. So, Brother Ronnie, what is he saying? In the majority of the cases in the Old Testament, it's translated to count. He was not counted as part of their lives. They didn't want him to be involved in their lives. They didn't want Jesus woven into their lives. He was meaningless. 
valueless. Jesus is inconsequential to the lost heart and mind. He doesn't factor into their plans. This is just the opposite of what Peter's valuation of Jesus is. As a matter of fact, he writes that the distinguishing factor of belief in Christ is to value Him. 1 Peter 2.7 Unto you therefore which believe, He is precious. Just like that tabernacle to those Israelites in the wilderness, He's precious. I surround my life around that, that place of God. That, that dwelling of God. I surround my life around that person of Jesus. He is woven to those that believe, to those that have had the arm of the Lord revealed. He's every part of my life. I want Him woven into every aspect. My secret life, my public life, my married life, my children, my relationship with my children and my employment. I want Him woven into every part of my life. But outside of Christ, they don't esteem Him. They don't want Him woven in. Our behavior, then our belief. Look at verse number 4. Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Verse number 4 starts out, Surely, if it were New Testament, it would be, Verily, verily, truly, truly, it is of certainty that He hath borne our griefs carried our sorrows. I don't know if you noticed it or not, but Isaiah, Isaiah is moving into that redemptive part of what he's seeing. That what he's seeing taking place through the eye of prophecy. You see, through the telescope of prophecy, he's looking down at the cross on which Jesus, the Lamb of God, died. He carried the cross of grief of our sin and the sorrow of our shame. His suffering, writhing in pain on the cross was for my sin, my transgression. Do you catch that? He hath borne our grief, carried our sorrow. It's that substitution. He is, he's beginning to show that substitution. What would happen to this servant of God? The grief and sorrow of an eternity in hell are being poured out into the labor of God's only Son as He cries out, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? Do you sense the sorrow? The anguish in the heart of Jesus? That was our sorrow. That was our grief. Should have been ours writhing in pain and anguish in hell for all eternity. And yet it's put on Him. Isaiah is beginning to reveal that redemptive work of Jesus in the prophecy. That substitutionary atonement on the cross. Note the word yet. Verse number 4. He, Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Despite that fact, yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He is carrying the grief and sorrow of theirs and our torments in hell. And what was their blinded reaction? What is the lost sinner's heart to say about the cross? He got what he deserved. Jesus got what he deserved. They value him as being bitten 
as beaten and was violently treated this way by God Himself for good reason. He deserved it. The insolent human heart looks at the cross the same way the religious leaders of that day look at the cross. Likewise, Matthew 27, 41 through 43, likewise also the chief priest mocking him with the scribes and Pharisees said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we'll believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now. If he will have him, for he said, I am the son of God. Did you hear their mockery? Oh, if you're the Messiah, come on down. Work a miracle, come on down from that cross. We'll believe you then. When the lost sinner looks at the cross, his heart cries, What's that got to do with me? I don't have anything to do with this man. As far as I'm concerned, he got what he deserved. What's a dead Jew on a cross 2,000 years ago got to do with me? I tell you, nothing. Nothing. If he has something to do with me, prove it. God send lightning bolt down right now and strike that tree. <laughs> you see, it's just a bunch of religious nonsense. Isn't that the heart of the unbelieving? Prove it, God. Send the sign. Knock down a tree. Do, do all kinds of miracles. And, and they, they demand that. In their rejection of their heart, they demand that of the redeeming Lamb. You know, to close, Barry Leventhal, wasn't long, Barry Leventhal, the man who accused Hal of having a trick Bible embraced Christ as his Messiah. The unbelieving Jew became a believing Christian. He later wrote this, There are none who are as deaf as those that do not want to hear. There are none as deaf as those that don't want to hear. How do those who do not want to hear have their ears open? How do those who do not want to see have their eyes open? Who hath believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord revealed? You see, it is a miracle from God when He takes us from unbelief to belief. It's not conducive. It's not natural. It is supernatural work by the power of God to go to belief in Jesus Christ. God's here this morning. His arm is laid bare. I thank God for the day He turned my bitter, blind, unbelieving heart to one that has seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ who has radically changed my mind. He has changed my path. He has set my course. He made me His own. If you're here this morning and you have long rejected the Lamb of God, may the arm of the Lord bear his strength. May He show you your need of a Savior. Isaiah's recorded your whole attitude, your whole disposition to Jesus in unbelief, in the rejection of the Lamb. It's part of the Gospel. It's part of the Gospel to recognize our own rejection, our own sin, and how Jesus has taken that sin upon Himself. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Let's stand in a word of prayer and 
you respond. If you're here today lost, you don't know the Lord Jesus, you come and know Him. Put your trust in Him. If Isaiah has read your title clear, if he has shown you what is in your heart, may the arm of the the Lord bear His strength and open your eyes today. Put your trust in Jesus. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. Thank you for Isaiah's prophecy. Thank you. I hope hope everyone here that is saved has gone down memory's lane and seen where, where their eyes were open, where their ears were open, where they recognized who Jesus is. And we... We were in that position, but God, we have seen it. Why? Because the power of the Lord had been revealed. His arm had been laid bare. We have believed the report of the prophet, of the gospels, of the apostles, and the church. We have believed the gospel. We have believed their report. God, for those that may be here without the Lord Jesus, I pray they come. Know you in saving faith. Father, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. One, maybe two verses of a script of, of a hymn. I am thine, O Lord, 362. 362. If God has spoken to your heart, you respond. Altars are open. Maybe right there at your seat, you respond to God as we sing.